Welcome to The Chapel Online. At The Chapel, we're about helping people meet, know, and follow Jesus on the campus, in the city, and around the world. Well, good morning again on this warm summer day. It's going to get pretty warm out there. Glad you've joined us. This is our last week not in the Psalms. Psalms going to take us all the way to Labor Day. Yay. Uh, our last week talking about lament. Now, for some of you, you've loved it because it's helped you find the words and emotions that are in all of us during difficult times. Uh, some of you are ready to move on to thanksgiving or praise or trust or wisdom. All those are coming. But today, we're going to end our time just kind of in that. And I, I would really encourage you, as, as Dave has, if you're not in our reading plan, grab that book read through the Psalms this summer, take it with you wherever you go uh, throughout the summer, because they're just packed with great uh, encouragement, truth, and they'll help us. Help us, and today what we'll talk about is uh, wilderness wandering. I don't know if you've ever been lost in the wilderness, absolutely unsure of where you are. It's a horrible feeling. When I was a youth a pastor here at the church, um, we took a, a hiking trip uh, on the Continental Divide with 20, a busload of kids. It was the worst youth trip I would ever go on. Um, it was horrible. Uh, my wife's laughing because it was her last one. Uh, she told me there, I'm done. I'm never going again. But we actually got lost on the Continental Divide. And uh, it's just frightening when you don't know where you are and your guide doesn't know where you are and the people you're trying to meet, you don't know where they are. And when you're in a spiritual desert or wilderness, it's also very frightening. When you're not sure what's going on, you had uh, a thoughts that this is where life was going, and it doesn't seem to be going that way, and you're just wandering and wandering, and you're just not sure what God is doing. And if it lasts a day or two or a week or a month or a year or a decade, it's very disheartening. And if you look through the Bible, if you read it cover to cover, what you're going to see is there are times of wilderness wandering for the people of God. Always. God uses it for preparation. He's preparing us for something. Something that he wants to see birthed in us, formed in us, a character issue. Something that he wants to prepare us for. A journey, if you will, of faithfully following. You know, we say at the chapel, we help people meet, know, and follow. Well, meeting Jesus is, is um, wonderful. It can be a real hurdle of humility to cry out to a Savior. Getting to know Him can sometimes feel um, difficult and joyous at the same time. Following Him day after day, week after week, year after year through life, that can just be hard, particularly if there's a wilderness wandering. Because the, uh, the Israelites refused to believe that God was good, and, um, and he would care for them. He caused the Israelites, after they were liberated out of Egypt, to wander for 40 years. 40 years. He was preparing them through what I call correction. Preparation through correction. He wanted them to understand that he was able to sustain them. I've loaded my mouth with lozenges. I'm drinking and I'm still ready to cough.
I'm back, Kev. Thank you. So, 40 years, he's preparing them for the promised land. He needed them to know, hey, you can trust me. I took care of you for 40 years in the wilderness. And he was waiting for all the people that didn't believe to die off. So he just kept them wandering. If you go to the New Testament, Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, it says, the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. Jesus' time of preparation in the wilderness was going to come through temptation. God wouldn't tempt him. God would allow him to be tempted. And today, what we'll see is David is being prepared to be the king of Israel. His time of preparation will be formed and fashioned through a season of desperation. And what God is trying to strip him of is all self-reliance. What God is trying to get him ready for is God-reliance. I need you to trust me if you're going to be the righteous king of Israel. And so that's where we are today, Psalm 142. Every week we know and believe as we pray for you um, and our services as a staff and elders that, man, you can, it's, life is hard. Some of you are carrying enormous burden. Some of you are deeply uh, feeling the idea of wandering in the wilderness. So I want to pause and I want to pray for us. And I want to pray for you. Would you pray with me? Lord, today we are desperate. We need your help. We want to say that you've always been faithful, that you're good, and that we can sing of your goodness every day. But Lord, we need your help. We admit and confess that our situations, whether they've been brought on by bad decisions or you've allowed it, we need your help to get through them. We need your grace. We need your forgiveness. We need your patience and guidance. So would you meet us here in a unique way? Would your Holy Spirit minister deeply in the followers of Jesus Christ that they might know and trust you more thoroughly in the midst of whatever it is that they're going through? Would you hear our cries today, Lord? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I need to give you a quick overview of David's life to understand where we are in this psalm, Psalm 142, and um, just kind of from where he writes and what he, you know, uh, what's going on in his world. So this is what you need to know. While there would be a king over Israel, it was never God's design or desire to have a king rule over his people. He would rule them through his prophets. That was his design. That was his desire. His last prophet is Samuel. Samuel wrote 1st and 2nd Samuel. The people came to Samuel and said, hey, you know what? You're awesome and everything, but we want a king. I mean, look around us. Look at our neighbors. They all have kings. I need a king. It's kind of like an outdoor kitchen. You know, they all have outdoor kitchens. You know, we need something that approximates that, right? It's the, story. It's the temptation we all face, is it not? Everybody else is doing it, so... And then Samuel said, God, you won't believe this. They've rejected me. To which God said, they didn't reject you, man. They rejected me. Let them pick their king. So they said, okay, great. Everybody line up. Yeah. Mm -mm. Oh, you. You're the one. He's tall. He's strapping. He's good looking. We're going to go with that guy, Saul. Only problem with Saul, he's half-hearted. He wasn't committed. And so God would ultimately reject him. So, you know, this afternoon, it's a lazy Sunday afternoon, 1 Samuel. If you want to read through it with me this afternoon, here's what you can expect. That's a joke, but I wouldn't mind it if you read it. 1 Samuel 9, the people pick Saul as their king. 1 Samuel 10 and 11, he's anointed king by Samuel. He's 36. 
and he would reign for 42 years. Chapters 13 through 15, God rejects him as king because of his disobedience. He just wouldn't do what God asked. Said, commanded, David is anointed king by Samuel in 1 Samuel 16. He's really young. And they pick him out and said, you're the next king. 1 Samuel 17, David shows up with a slingshooter and kills Goliath. He's a hero. Everybody starts singing about him. Next slide. Psalm 18, David is brought into Saul's court. Come on in here. Saul had moods. He was a moody fella, particularly after God said, I'm done with you. And, and David would go and sing songs to him. Right? He's a singer, songwriter, warrior. I mean, he's like Toby Keith in a real uniform. It's amazing. He's really good. And he comforts Saul. Chapter 19, Saul, in a rage, tries to kill him. Maybe it was just a bad day, David thinks. He gets to know Saul's son, Jonathan. And Jonathan's like, dude, he's going to kill you. You need to run. You need to flee from here. And then he's in the wilderness. Here's what happens when we're in the wilderness. We're no longer in control. There are no appointments. There are no assignments. We're just surviving. That's what's happening to David. The book of 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel tells us what's going on in David's life from the outside. The Psalms tell us what's going on from David's life on the inside, right? There's, in, in 1 and 2 Samuel, there are 15 different stories of David's wandering, his wilderness, his running for 10 years, all the way through his 20s. He's running from Saul. No longer is it a mood it's a national security issue. They've put a bounty on David's head and the whole nation is trying to kill him. That's a bad day. That's a bad day. So of the 15 stories that are explained in First and Second Samuel, 23 Psalms of David, he wrote 73 of the 150 Psalms. 73 of them have David's name attached to them. 23 of those are about those 10 years of wandering. And today's no different. If you have a Bible, you'll notice there's a subscript. There's a subheading under the number 142. Here's what it says. Uh, a miscal of David, that tells you the beat. This is for the drummer, I guess. It's a musical instrument. It's 4-4, four, four, it's 6-8, it's rock and roll. I don't know what it is. And when he was in a cave of prayer, so if being a lament, it may be a little slow. It's a short little psalm. Psalm 22, he's in a cave. I mean, excuse me. 1 Samuel 22, he's in a cave. 1 Samuel 24, he's also in a cave. He's in two caves. I think this psalm goes with the first cave, and Psalm 57 goes with the second cave. You can read that one uh, later, too. But you talk about confusing. He's on the run. He was anointed king as probably a teenager. You talk about go to your head. I mean, he's rookie of the year. He's a hero. He killed the giant Philistine. He sang to the king. He was everybody's favorite. He was unbelievable. And you talk about circumstances that have changed. Now he's in a cave. Wow. Let me ask you this. Have your circumstances changed significantly in the past few years? Everybody's have. Just think about before COVID. I don't know when we say after COVID. I don't know when we say that. 
But before COVID, you know, things were sure. Now, maybe not so much. Maybe, maybe recently, you know, not too long ago, you felt like the direction of your life was really pretty clear. You know, I was going to do this, and it's not clear anymore. My next steps are not that obvious. I feel like I'm wandering in a desert. I feel like I'm hiding in a cave. Clearly, God was preparing, maybe we should say, is preparing David for something, to be king. But he was anointed at such a young age, surely he felt like, hey, I'm the guy, right? I'm the warrior. I'm the singer. I'm in the, I'm in the place of where Saul is. I'm next. Maybe you felt like God's preparing you for something, and now it feels like the whole thing's falling apart. I thought this was my next business venture. I prayed about it. I asked other people to pray about it. It seemed really clear that this was the next step, and now, I don't know. I thought, I thought we were going to get married. We prayed about it. Boom. I don't know. I, I, we prayed for children. We asked the Lord for children. It's his desire to give us children. Boom. We all deal with this. And David's life is really, really unsure. Here's what I need you to remember. Don't doubt in the dark what God's made clear in the light. David's in a dark cave. God had called him, and he was still forming him into be, to be the man that he needed to be. And that's a, that's a, that's a large thing to kind of hold in. So he's on the run. He leaves Saul. Where does he go? He doesn't he have anybody with him. He doesn't have any money. You know, he doesn't have any credit cards. Nothing. Well, it seems like in 1 Samuel 21, it seems like he has this thought as being a warrior. I'll go to Saul's enemies. If, if I have the same enemy as you do, we would be friends, right? We both hate that guy. So he goes um, to Gath, a little community outside of Jerusalem, and he goes and he sees um, Achish, the king. Well, the king, remember, Achish is a Philistine. He goes, you killed my biggest guy. We're going to take your head off. David comes up with a brilliant idea. I'm going to act like a crazy man. I'm going to get shaving cream and put it all over my face and go, that's what he does. I'm really trying to get you to read 1 Samuel today. <laughs> that's what he does. And the king's like, you go and get out of here. And he leaves and he goes to a cave in Adullam. And that's, that's where we pick it up. I'll read through the whole psalm. It's only seven verses. I cry aloud to the Lord. I lift up my voice to the Lord of mercy. I pour out before him my complaint. Before him, I tell my trouble. When my spirit grows faint within me, it is you who watch over my way. The path where I walk, people have hidden a snare from me. Look, and see, there's no one at my right hand. No one is concerned for me. I have no refuge. No one cares for my life. I cry to you, Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Listen to my cry. I'm in desperate need. Rescue me from those who pursue me, for they're too strong for me. Set me free from my prison. 
that I might praise your name. Then the righteous will gather about me because of your goodness to me. So if we look at that, the problem is we're weak, trapped, and alone. Verses 3 and 4, my spirit grows faint within me. And I look on my right side and my left side, and there's nobody there. There's nobody walking with me. Nobody cares for me. I'm winded. I'm weak. I'm alone. I've lost my fight, is what he's saying. That's a desperate, desperate situation. Traps are set for him. He doesn't know where he should step next, what decision he needs to make next. Let me ask you this question. Is this you? Exhausted. Do you feel trapped? Do you feel alone, even in your own family? When we're here, in this moment of desperation, we need to turn to the Lord for help. That's what David did in the cave. Only God can help him. And you know what he wants? He only wants God's help. So men, let me pause and just talk to you for a second. It seems like to me in my observation that women and children tend to ask for help before men do. Men double down. Men try harder. If there are snares out there, I'm going to find them. I'm going to turn them around, and I'm going to get them to blow up on my enemy. Right? That's, that's what we tend to do. We tend to double down rather than go down on our knees and say, Lord, will you help me? If you've played sports, you know what a ball hog is, somebody that has to have the ball to be the hero, to take the last shot, whether they can make it or not. And playing with someone like that is very frustrating because they put the whole team in jeopardy. And if you've been in battle, whether in the office space or actually as a, uh, serving in the military, the last thing you want is a commander that doesn't know when to ask for help because they're going to put the entire unit in trouble. So when do we often ask for help? When the stakes are really high. When the stakes are super high. That's when we ask for help. When a child, our child, is in trouble and we don't know what to do, we quickly ask for help. But for some reason, men, we often miss the importance of things that we shouldn't miss. I know men that are more diligent in the maintenance of their automobile and ready to ask for help there than they are in asking for help in their marriage and the diligence there. Weekly dates, monthly getaways, annual extravaganza. I'll say it again. Weekly dates, do something with her every week where you're eyeball to eyeball, talking about life. Monthly, let's do something, maybe overnight, if we can afford it and figure it out. And annually, let's do something that's kind of outside of the norm. We'll go to Grand Isle and pitch a tent. Yeah. The people that laughed are the ones that have done that in the past. It's not as nearly as exciting as it sounds. Right? So we don't ask for help. When it comes to following Jesus, what's at stake? It's not more wandering. It's the fame and glory of Christ. That's what's at stake. Because when we cry out for help from him and he shows up, he shows up, he shows off. And it's, it's amazing. The Apostle Paul had some very unique experiences. 
So unique were they that it made him arrogant. And he had to deal with, I've seen things that no one else has seen. It's like a premier athlete. I can do things that no one else can do. And, and so he says, in order to stay humble, God gave me a thorn in my flesh to keep me humble. And then Jesus said this to the Apostle Paul. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. To which the Apostle said, therefore, he's talking to the church in Corinth. Therefore, if that's true, and he said it to me, if that's true, I'm going to boast all the more gladly in my weakness so that Christ's power, Christ's power might rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulty. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. So bring it on, wandering, difficulty, persecution, because what the world will get to see in my weakness is Christ. And the question is, are you ready for Christ in your situation? Have you cried out to him? And if you haven't, why not? Why not? Here's a logical thing that we often miss. The quicker we, we call out to God for rescue, the quicker we'll experience God's rescue. And in situations of desperation, what we discover is God is sufficient. And if we're there for a very long time, what we discover next is that God alone is sufficient. And the question is, do I want God in the midst of my wilderness wandering? Am I ready to cry out? Verses 1, 2, and 6, the prayer. We cry out for mercy and rescue. Starting with the two verses at the top. I cry aloud to the Lord. I lift up my voice to the Lord of mercy. I pour out to him my complaint. Before him, I tell my trouble. This is an individual who's not thinking. He's not in contemplative prayer. He's not quietly kneeling in the cave. He's speaking aloud. He's actually saying, Jesus, help me. <laughs> help me, Lord. It's gotten to the point where he's actually saying things and he's crying out. Has your situation become severe enough where you will actually verbally cry out? Here's the thing. It doesn't have to become absolutely desperate. You can start much earlier, right? Lord, help me. Lord, help me. When men, particularly, I'm picking on you a little bit today. I'm just getting ready for Father's Day because everybody's going to gush on the dads in the room and all that. When do you cry out? So last summer, I had the opportunity to fish with my brother-in-law in Montana on a glacier lake. Yes, yes, yes. It's awesome. We had our nieces with us. Awesome. Somebody had introduced bass to this, this lake. Not awesome because they're not indigenous to that area. So he said, every bass you catch, throw out. So I put a double, triple hook thing on there and God, I got a bass. And I was, I was kind of, that's kind of showing off. I grabbed it to get it off the treble hook. Somehow the whole hook went into my finger. And the fish is hanging and the skin's pulling. You know, I didn't stand there stoically and go, oh, look, I have a hook in my finger. I went, ow, ow, and I am such a baby. I cut the lips off the fish. We're, we're not letting the fish 
back in, right? Get rid of the fish. For the rest of the day, I had the lure hanging there. No, don't touch me. Don't touch me. Don't touch me. We get, he's a doctor. Surely you have lidocaine, right? That's what doctors keep. It's like a pastor with a Bible. Surely you have a lidocaine, don't you? Yes, I do. His daughter's a doctor. His son's training to be a doctor. They lay me out at the cabin. They shoot my finger with lidocaine. They rip it out on the count of three, which was really two, which is a cheap trick for the doctors in the room. On the count of three, one, two. Anyway, I was, when do you cry out? The sooner you start crying out, the quicker the resolution will be. Not only does he cry out verbally, verse 6, Listen to my cry, for I'm in desperate need. Rescue me from those who pursue me, for they're too strong for me. Absolute admission of weakness. I need you. The word listen is in the imperative. He's saying to God, listen to me. Please listen. I need you to pay attention. Has your situation gotten to the point where you're willing to cry out? Too many times we wait for it to be crippling when we could go to him much sooner and cry out to him. This is what we're trying to teach through the Psalms. And then David makes this, makes a decision in the midst of his prayer. His decision is the portion. God is our refuge and life. Verse 5. I cry to you, Lord, I say, if you have a Bible, circle that. That's a a declaration of decision. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. If I'm living on this earth, I'm trusting in you. Whatever you need to do to get me out of this cave, that's it. I'm not going to trust in anything else. If I'm getting out of here, it's because of you. Is he hiding? Yes. But he's saying my ultimate refuge is not a cave. It's the Lord. You're it. Nothing else. Let me tell you what happens when you spend your time looking over your shoulder and trying to figure out how to um, get out of your situation, how to find a shortcut, how to minimize the struggle. This is what you'll miss. You'll miss the Lord right in front of you because you're not looking for him. And David says, you know what? I'm only going to look for him. He is my portion. In Daniel chapter 3, these young superstar intellectual men, Daniel, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, are taken out of their country and put to work in the government of Babylon, the brightest men there. And they knew that they, they were different because they wouldn't play by the rules. They wouldn't eat the food that everybody ate. So they said, look, we're going to catch them in their piety and they made, a, they made a law. If you don't bow down to the golden image of Nebuchadnezzar, you're going to be thrown into the fire. They didn't bow down. They wouldn't bow down. And they brought him to King Nebuchadnezzar, and this is what they said. King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. You're not our ultimate judge. We don't have to explain ourselves, but we will. If we are thrown into a blazing fire, the God we serve is able. Too many Christians have forgotten that God is able. He is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. Somehow he will. But even if he does not, we want you to know, 
your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. If you're prepared to make a statement like that, you need to be prepared to be thrown into the fire. We're not going to do it. God will do what he does, but I'm trusting in him. They made a decision. David made a decision. They pitched him into the fire. The the men that threw him into the fire died because it was so hot. And then Nebuchadnezzar goes, I thought there were three. When I look in the fire, there are four. Daniel chapter 3, beautiful story. Have you gotten to the place where you're saying, I'm not going to trust in something else. I'm going to trust in the Lord. I'm not going to look for a shortcut. I'm going to trust in the Lord. See, in an affluent society, we have so many options. We have lots of good options. But when we take a good option that's not a God option, we miss God. Um, A couple days ago, we were headed east in a little car caravan. My wife, myself, my adult son, in one car, my adult daughter in another car. There's a wreck on I-12. <laughs> Go figure. And uh, it stopped. Here's the thing. I have a phone with a GPS in it. Ways. My wife has a phone with a GPS in it. Google. My son not only has a phone with a GPS in it, but he has all knowledge. My daughter has a phone with a GPS in it and the other car. There's so many options. There's so many different ways to get where we're going. We need to go north. We, everybody's on the phone. And I just want to say, there are too many options here. Just follow me. Which is really irritating when you're certain your way is better. When you're certain your way is quicker. When you're certain you know what's best. There was a trip you know, over to Mandeville. No big deal. But so many of us assume we know where God is leading us and we can get ourselves there more quickly, more accurately, and without as much headache. And all we'll do is end up in tickfall somewhere, stuck on another bridge. David says, you're my portion. How long did he cry out before he got there? I don't know. The psalm is really short. You have to understand, David doesn't just write them down on a napkin. He lives them. And then he writes them down. And so sometimes you just have to go back, back through. i got to pray verses 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. 1, 2, 3, 4, 6. One, before I can actually say, I say, you're my portion. I just need to stay there and cry out and pour out my heart to God. And then it resolves. Praise. That's the result. God is our deliverance and deserves our praise. Verse 7. Set me free from my prison. Get me out of this cave that I might praise your name. Then the righteous will gather about me because of your goodness to me. Get me out of this cave. So many of us, if we do cry out, that's where our prayers end. Get me out of this cave. Why? David says, so that I might praise you. So that I might praise you. Have you determined that when you are set free, when your situation changes, when what is cloudy becomes clear, you will praise him. Why do you think God would want to rush to your rescue to deliver you so that you can take all the glory for what he's done in your life? Why would, that, why would you think that? But we do. Free me from this. And then, I'll, then I'll, be, I'll be the one that did it. So with my grandson in town, got to take him fishing. 
ants and sandals don't mix. He doesn't really like the wet grass or the ants or anything in the grass. So we sat on the tailgate of the truck. We got the cane pole out. We got the bobber out. We swing it out there. It plops in the water. And there we are with our feet dangling off the back. It's a perfect afternoon. And I say to him, you know what's great about this kind of fishing? You get to talk about life. He, like his dad, is a talker. It's lots of questions, lots and lots and lots of words. So I figured I teed up a, you know, an easy one. So what do you want to talk about? I don't know. There are no fish, Poppy. So, well, we haven't been here that long. You know, we just, just put it in. But you know what you remind me of? We didn't do something I always do when I fish. Pray. So let's pray. Bring the hot dog back in. Hold it in my hand. Lord, would you give us a fish? Just one fish. It would make such a great day for us. Poppy would just love that. And then he jumps in. Poppy, let's pray for two fish. Okay, maybe five fish. All right, maybe a thousand fish. I said, you know, I love that you know already that God is so good that he wants to give us more than we ever ask for. But it would take us all day to get a thousand fish out of this pond. So we finished praying and said, amen. In goes the bobber, and there we sit. Weep, weep. Catch a fish. We bring it in. You want to touch it? No. I don't want anything to do with it, but let's take a picture for my mom. Okay. And then he said it. Poppy, we caught a fish. I said, you're right, we did. But we have to stop now and thank God because he answered our prayer. We prayed for one fish and we have it. Anything after that? Lanyap. There was no lanyap. There was nothing after that. But he answered our prayer. David says, you free me from this prison. I'm going to praise you. I'm going to praise your name. And then you know what? People that know you and like you, they're going to come around me. Why? It's not about me. It's about you. They're going to come around me and we're going to talk about you. And we're going to praise you. Get me out of here. This was the very beginning of a 10-year journey. David would praise him all the way through the journey, all the way to the end of the journey. Because he decided, you're my portion. You're my portion. So we go to Jesus' time of preparation in the wilderness. He was tempted. And when you are in desperate situations, we're often tempted. <clears throat> we're often tempted to take a shortcut, to relieve the pressure, to make the journey shorter so that we can try to get to where we think we should go quicker. Jesus fasted for 40 days and for 40 nights, and he was super hungry. And the tempter came along and said, hey, I don't know if you've noticed, but you probably have. All the rocks around you, don't they look like oven-baked bread with a little butter on top? Say the word. And you can turn those stones into bread. You can shortcut your hunger and you can eat. And Jesus said, you know what? That's not what the word of God says. That's not what the promise of God says. So he says to the tempter the following, it is written, men shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. God is my portion. I'm going to trust him to sustain me, even if it's on nothing but his word. The devil said, oh yeah, but 
you want God's attention and you want it now. You don't want to have to go through all the, all the struggle to get to the, the crown. You want the crown without the cross. It's going to be so hard. You don't have to suffer. If you just jump off the temple, God will send his angels. They'll be ready and they'll be right there. You don't have to wait. You don't have to go through all of this. To Jesus said, hey, look, the Bible says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. God is my portion. I will wait on him to exalt me. I will wait on him to lift me up. If you've ever been in the practice of self-exaltation, you know how precarious it is. Two things usually happen. One is you step on somebody to get up the ladder. You either ruin that person, that re their relationship with, you know. And secondly, you get up just to find out you're not ready. Your character is not what it needs to be. Your competency is not what it needs to be. Now you have to fake it because everybody else knows you shouldn't be there. That's usually what happens with self-exaltation. But when God exalts, you're there. And I'm just going to trust him. Don't you want advancement? Yes. But I'm going to take my concerns to the Lord and say, would you, in your time, when I'm ready and you know better than me, that's a hard place to live, but it's a glorious place to live because then when you're exalted, you go, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. The tempter came a third time to Jesus and said, hey, listen, you don't have to go through all that suffering. I can get you a lot of worship right here. People, There's millions of people that respond to me. You bow down to me, and you'll have it immediately. And Jesus said, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. God is my portion. I will wait on his timetable. I will pursue his glory. I will be a citizen of his kingdom. I'm going to trust in him. Have you decided through your difficult wanderings to make God your portion? Or are you still trying to find a shortcut. Here's what God did for Jesus. Exalted him above all names. Sustained him through death itself. And the whole creation will worship him. If he did that for his son, will he not also carry you through the wilderness he has you in to prepare you for the next chapter of your life? The answer is yes. He will, because he's so, so good. And I don't know how long you have to stay in prayer to get there. It's not a short journey often. And you have to get there because if you can make that decision that God is your portion, a couple things will happen. You will readily see his movement in your life much sooner than if you're looking for some way out. And you won't complain about your life. You will pursue him. And when people say, shouldn't you have an advancement by now? You can say, the Lord is in charge of that. My reputation, my advancement, and I'm going to trust him. I can just do my work. That's what David was doing. The quickest way to the kingship as the anointed king is to kill the other king. David would not do it. And he had opportunity to in the other cave. 1 Samuel 24. You really want to read that this afternoon. So I want to pray for you that if you need to be crying out verbally, audibly, that you will. Until you can say, you know what? You're my portion. You're my refuge in the land of the living. On this earth, you're the one I'm trusting. And it's not a one and done deal. You may have to start over again tomorrow. 
but he's worth it, and he is good. Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you for your word to us, your word through David to help us when we are in a cave and dark, in a dark place, and we wonder where you are. Would you give us the courage to cry out honestly, openly? Would you give us the boldness to share what's really going on in our head and our heart, the struggles that we have? Would we, by your grace, have the opportunity to declare to ourselves, to you and to others, that you're our portion, you're our refuge. We're not looking for another way. We're trusting your way. And Lord, we want to decide today that we will praise you. That when we are moved to another chapter, when we are not under such a stress, when you show up and rescue us, we'll praise you. We'll praise you in the house of God. We'll praise you in the church. We'll praise you with our friends. But you will get the praise. We're so grateful, Lord, that we can come to you openly and honestly. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us. To find out more about the chapel, visit thechapelbr.com.